the Hollywood Bowl, the Greek Theater, Red Rocks out in Denver, Royal Albert Hall in London, the O2 Arena in London, stuff like that. Just We never take any of this for granted. You know, all of this was born overnight and all of us put on every show like it's gonna be gone tomorrow. Welcome to another episode of the Assyrian Podcast. My name is Rhoda, and I'm so excited to be back as your host for episode 17. We've interviewed different types of Assyrians for the Assyrian Podcast, and one of our goals is to highlight the work and life of Assyrians around the world who are doing some really awesome things. For example, did you know that there is an Assyrian who is a part of an a cappella singing group? Well, for this week's episode, I had the chance to sit down with Sargon Ursegi Ishu, who is a part of the a cappella singing group Straight No Chaser. What started as a college group in 1996 went on to become a worldwide sensation after they were signed in 2008 with Atlantic Records, which has been home to artists from Aretha Franklin and Led Zeppelin to Bruno Mars and Ed Sheeran. With six studio albums, Straight No Chaser has toured the world and performed on the Today Show as well as Late Night with Jimmy Fallon. In this episode, you'll learn more about acapella singing groups and hear Segi talk about his start with Straight No Chaser from his college days at Indiana University to today. But before we get into this week's podcast, I want to remind you that if you like what you're hearing on the Assyrian Podcast... Let us know by emailing us at assyrianpodcasts at gmail.com, like us on social media, and most importantly, subscribe and review the podcast. You can visit us on our website, www.assyrianpodcast.com, and follow the links to subscribe using an iPhone or an Android. Also, remember to share this episode with your friends and help them subscribe as well. Thank you so much for being a part of our worldwide community of Assyrian Podcast listeners. Finally, I'd like to give a shout out and a thank you to our sponsor, John Oshana from HomeSmart. Whether you're thinking about purchasing or selling your home either in Arizona or California, contact John Oshana Real Estate Professional at 209-968-9519, on Facebook at John Oshana Realtor, or at John.Oshana on Instagram. And now, here's my conversation with Zegi Ishu. I grew up in Madison Heights, Michigan. I had a great childhood. My dad was an entrepreneur. He had his own business. He was a distributor. He was a hard worker. I have an older brother who's the same. They're carbon copies of each other. And he's six years older, Danny. My mom went back to school once I was in school full time, I think like kindergarten, preschool. She went back, got her degree and started working for the US government. So she's also very driven. So growing up, I feel like I had two great examples of driven people. something you don't see a lot in immigrant communities. Mm-hmm. People that come over here, they kind of just want to recreate what they had at home where they were just relaxed and, and weren't really embracing the American culture. And I think my parents did a great job of teaching me both cultures. At home, we spoke in Assyrian mm-hmm. as, as well as I could. And outside of the home, I spoke English. But it was a great role model that I had at home. So I think that's what really ultimately helped me be where I am. I know that your dad is involved in social club here here in the Detroit area. Were you involved as a 
a young kid or as a teenager in any of the events? I was I was always around it. My brother was in the youth group. I was a little too young, I think, at the time he was in it. And my dad was the president. And then he, after he was the president, he was just in the club. And I think he's president again now. So I don't I don't think the term limits mimic the <laughs> the U.S. system very well. But I was always around it. A lot of the times at the parties, my dad would ask me to perform the national anthem or to perform the Assyrian national anthem and stuff like that. So I was always around it. Always had so much fun doing it. You know, going to the conventions in mm-hmm. Chicago or Modesto or. Connecticut or even here in Detroit. I mean, it's, it was a lot of fun and it was, it was a very cool thing to have as a family outside of our stuff going on at school and whatnot. When did you know you could sing? I think that I really had the idea. Someone had the idea that I could sing. This doesn't really sound very modest, but I was in kindergarten and my music teacher, Dr. Phillips pulled my parents aside after one of our kindergarten concerts he told my parents he said listen your son has an ability you need to nurture that ability get him into voice lessons get him into music keep him in music luckily my parents listened to his advice and also luckily that I enjoyed it and kept doing it so it was really Dr. Phillips in in kindergarten that that pushed me into into what I'm doing and you continued voice lessons all throughout elementary school and high school so I started doing voice lessons probably in sixth grade but I was involved in music all throughout elementary school and in fifth grade I ended up also joining band I was singing playing the trumpet always involved in in drama and acting and musical theater dancing so it was the whole musical package I was trying to be involved in as much as I could What's your favorite musical theater piece that you did? My favorite role that I that I had was probably my freshman year of high school, I played Tevya in The Fiddler on the Roof. It's such a big role. If you know the show, Tevya is, is the lead character and he has all of these struggles that he's dealing with, with his country, with his religion, with his family, with finances, with all these interpersonal relationships. And as a 14 year old kid, trying to convey that to an audience is almost impossible because what does a 14 year old kid know about any kind of struggle in this world? But that was the most fun. Got to put on this huge fake beard and try to do this accent as well as I could, but it was it was a lot of fun. How did you decide that you were gonna go to school in Indiana after high school? Well, that was an interesting route. So. I ended up changing high schools my second semester junior year. When we moved, we moved from Madison Heights to Rochester and they had given me the option to stay and finish at, at Lamphere in Madison Heights. But Lamphere was such a small school, I found that the majority of the students that were the leads in the plays were the starters on the soccer team and the starters on the basketball team. So it didn't really give me a good enough gauge on if I was talented or if the talent pool was small mm-hmm. and there was just a handful of us that were just doing everything. So I decided to give it a shot, let, you know, let, let me go to Rochester. It's a much bigger school. No one will know me. There won't be any favoritism in auditions and whatnot. So I ended up taking the leap to Rochester and that's when, you know, my teachers noticed me pretty early. I mean, this all sounds very, very modest, but you know, my teachers would tell me like, hey, you've got, you've got something here. You might want to consider this on your next level of education. It was really our vice principal at Rochester, a fellow student who had transferred at the same time as I did to Rochester, Ian McEwen, clarinet player. He was like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go to Indiana. That's where I'm aiming to go. And I was like, oh, I don't really know much about Indiana. Growing up in Michigan, you don't hear much about out-of-state schools. You hear about Michigan, Michigan State. And I was exposed to all those schools throughout uh, different 
community orchestras I was in, the Detroit Civic uh, Symphony Orchestra, the University of Michigan Honors Orchestra, and stuff like that. I decided to look into it, and Indiana at the time was the top music school in the country. So it was a huge undertaking to go and audition. And ultimately, of all the schools I auditioned at, I felt the most comfortable there. With music, it really comes down to your one-on-one experience with your private teacher because that's really what you're going to that school for that one-on-one tutorage if that's even a word so i i felt really comfortable there i I felt that my professor there would really push me to become better than i could be elsewhere so that's why i ultimately chose indiana and luckily i did because that led to so many other things for me what was the audition process like for indiana so the audition process at most universities is very similar. One thing that I was, I was given a piece of advice beforehand saying, before you go to a college to audition, go there a couple months earlier and request a private lesson with the teacher that you would like mm-hmm. to take from. So I had gone to uh, a couple different schools early and taken a lesson. After when you come back, it gives them a little sense of how you play, not under so much pressure in an audition. So. You go and they ask you to play a couple things that you've prepared. And also I was I was auditioning to be a trumpet player at the university. I wasn't going there for, for vocal music, I was going for orchestral music. You go into the audition room, you play a bunch of stuff for the professor and then he'll put some stuff you've never seen before in front of you and you have to sight read it. And you know, they talk to you a little bit, get, get an idea of who you are and what your aspirations are as, as a performer, as if you wanna go into teaching or playing or what path you really want to take. Yeah, that's pretty much it. And and after the audition, he kind of hinted that good news would be coming my way in a, in a few weeks in the mail. So the decision wasn't wasn't very hard. You said you went and auditioned for uh, trumpet. How did you go from auditioning for the orchestra to actually singing eventually? So I've been singing my whole life <laughs> and I've been playing trumpet since fifth grade. So essentially my whole life as well. When I went to Indiana, I wanted to find other things to do other than just my specific area of studies. There were a couple different things on campus, you know, joined a fraternity, stuff like that. And then a friend of mine, I was doing this, I was doing this musical off campus. It was put on by the city. And a friend of mine was saying, hey, listen, there's this acapella group having auditions tonight. I think you should really go. And I was like, oh, well, tell me about it. She said, it's a bunch of guys that sing acapella, and I wasn't really familiar with acapella that much, so she was like, it was a bunch of guys that sing acapella, you know, and I was like, that sounds like super boring and stuffy. I was like, I don't know why you would think I would enjoy that. She's like, no, 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 these guys are cool. They're cool, they hang out, you know. It's it's almost a fraternity that also sings. So I decided to appease her and take the audition. And during the audition, you go in and you sing a song and then they ask you a bunch of really dumb questions that college kids would ask other college kids just to see like what your personality is and how you'd react after hearing some, some dumb, shocking question, not PG. So I, I really enjoyed it. So I decided to give it a shot, join the group, and it was the best decision I, I've ever made. What year was it when you joined the group? That was my sophomore year in 2002. But the group was founded in 1996, I yeah, thought I Yeah, 1996. So acapella in the college community, in the college world, is huge. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly started on the East Coast with some of the Ivy League schools. Those acapella groups have been there for you know almost 100 years, maybe even longer. And Indiana at the time, when, when the original guys started Straight No Chaser, Indiana had no acapella group and their mindset was listen we're one of the top 
music schools in the country. Why don't we have an acapella group? That doesn't make any sense. They were in a larger group called the Singing Hoosiers, which was a campus show choir throughout, through the university. And they said, you know what? Let's just start this thing. Let's see what happens. It won't, we won't be affiliated with the university. We'll just be a student-run group. We'll get to sing new songs that are on the radio now, not these old mm -hmm. standards that we're kind of tired of. They started it and it really took off. And when you joined, how many members were in the band? At Indiana, the group always tried to stay around 10 members, mostly because, you know, guys had finals and different exams and stuff like that. You'd often find that you were down a guy or down two guys at rehearsal or even a show, maybe someone had something going on that they needed to be at for school. So the 10 was really just a strength in numbers kind of thing. We always stayed around 10. And when you first joined, do you remember the very first song you performed with the group? Yeah, so I remember my, my very first audition song was, uh, I sang this song for called Where's the Girl from the Scarlet Pimpernel, which is a musical. Then after the first round of auditions at callbacks, you sing with the group. And the first song I sang with the group was a song by another famous acapella group called Impact, called Without Your Love. The first song I ever performed with the group, I think was probably Dry Campus, which was an original song for Indiana University, mostly talking about how it's a dry campus and we have to find other ways to consume alcohol other than on campus. No other university can match up with IU, but students at the other schools are luckier than we. For them it's not a problem to drink illegally. But here at Indiana, if you're under 21, bowling at the Union is the only source of fun. Suggest uh, YouTubing it. When you joined, was the name already Straight No Chaser? Yep. yep Do you know where was... the name came from? So the story is that when they went to do their first gig, which was the IU Dance Marathon, it was this fundraising event uh, for charity, and they dance for I think it's like forty-eight hours straight, and you know they raise a bunch of money. These guys get up on stage, and one of them turns around and says what's our name gonna be? Like, no one knows what our name is. We didn't really lock one down. And one of the other guys just blurred out, like, straight no chaser. At the time, it had a couple of different connotations. First and foremost, there's an alcoholic reference, uh -huh. you know, drinking alcohol, straight no chaser, you drink a shot, and you don't drink anything after it. But now, as I'm doing this in quotes, a professional acapella group, the meaning for us is you're getting the music straight. You're getting the vocals straight with mm. no accompaniment, no background instruments, no tracks, no drummer, nothing. It's You're getting the vocals straight, no chaser. Tell us more about acapella groups. Everything I know about acapella groups comes from Glee, so I don't know if that's a good reference point. So what okay. can you tell us about what a an actual acapella group not on tv is like so i haven't seen glee and i haven't seen pitch perfect but i would i from what i've heard i think the depictions of acapella groups are in at least pitch perfect are fairly true to form a lot of acapella groups historically are very stuffy and stiff and nerdy and it's a bunch of nerds that get together and sing songs wearing khakis and over oversized sport coats but i think over the years now that vocal music has really come to the forefront because of 
shows like Glee and The Sing Off mm -hmm. and, and Pitch Perfect and even us to a smaller extent, it's kind of become cool. So acapella groups now are, are no longer the nerds of yesterday. It's the cool kids of today. It's really a fun expression of music. It, it is a little bit cheesy at times, even us. Uh, a lot of our banter, a lot of our jokes are very cheesy, but that stuff is universal. You know, cheese is universal and people enjoy that. It's, it's never offensive to anyone. It's accepted by everyone and everyone gets it, whether you're five years old or a hundred years old. If there's like a super cheesy one-line joke in there, everyone's gonna get it. So I think acapella has evolved to becoming a little more mainstream. People are singing you know, more pop songs rather than old classic boring songs that have just been overdone and overdone and overdone. So I think it's evolved and it's, and it's a little bit cooler now. What year did you graduate uh, college? 2005. But you continued to stay in the group. So how did you guys go from a college affiliated group, if you were at any point, to a group that's no longer affiliated? Okay, so that's an interesting story. So the way Straight No Chaser worked at Indiana was essentially like a fraternity. Once you graduate, you're out. You are cast off into the world <laughs> with a kick in the butt and a good luck and we'll see you later, kid. So once, once you graduate, you're out and you're replaced with the newer crop. So the group lived on and went on and there were many iterations of the group from my graduation to 2008 when we got signed by Atlantic. And how that happened was in 2006, every Straight No Chaser alumnus went back to Indiana for a 10 year reunion, because mm -hmm. that's 10 years after the original mm -hmm. guys started the group. In anticipation of that, one of the original guys, Randy, put a bunch of videos up on YouTube saying, hey guys, let's reminisce a little bit. YouTube was a brand new thing. There wasn't very many people on it. And it was pretty much just for us to poke fun. Like, look how thin you guys used to be and look <laughs> how much hair you used to have and stuff like that. And you look so young. And one of the videos somehow started gaining some steam. It got shared and shared and it would get emailed to everyone. And it became the most watched and most viral video of 2007 with 11 million views, which by today's standards is, is nothing. Justin Bieber puts out a video and he'll have 11 million views by 45 minutes from now. But back then it was it was a fresh platform and, and not many people used it as they do today. But that video was ultimately the, the reason why we are a professional group now. So Craig Kalman, who's the CEO of Atlantic Records, saw the video. He called Randy on New Year's Day in 2000, 2008 and he said, hey, this is Craig Kalman, CEO of Atlantic Records. And Randy is ready to hang up because he's like, okay, crank call. Great. Thanks for wasting my time. And he's like, no, no, no. You can, you can look me up. I'm legit. I'm interested in signing you guys. And Randy's like, well, we all live in different cities and we all have different jobs and we're not a group anymore. And, and Craig was like, well, you're gonna be. So he flew everyone out to, to New York. Or I think they went to LA first for a meeting and then they ultimately flew to New York to audition in Craig's office at Atlantic. Right there on the spot, he offered them the, the contract and signed him in 2008. Were you there at the auditions? I was not. So myself and Tyler were brought in in 2009. When this happened, guys had lives. A couple guys had wives and children and full-time jobs. So two guys were like, you know, this sounds great and everything, but I can't really take that risk of leaving my job and my family for something with no guarantee that's probably going to fail. There's there's no track record of an acapella group succeeding. I mean, Rockapella succeeded, but they had Carmen Sandiego. That was huge for them. So two guys decided to sit out. And what, what they did was then they reached into the alumni pool and said, okay, who can we get to fill these two spots. Ultimately, it came down to Tyler Trepp and myself. 
So we were brought in in 2009. What were you doing in 2009? I was in Las Vegas as the director of operations for my brother's company. And so you joined the group right then and there? Or how long did it take you to make a final decision? So I went and auditioned in Chicago in March, I believe. And I got a call in April. I hadn't told anybody that I was going to audition because I didn't know what was going to come of it. I, I don't know what I was thinking, but I just I think I was just thinking with my heart rather than with my brain. <laughs> And when I got the call, you know, I had to have a very uncomfortable conversation with my brother where I was like, I kind of left them high and dry, but ultimately music was my passion and I loved my job in Vegas and I would have been just as happy doing that. But you've got a chance to live out your dreams. It's hard to say no to that. So I, I had to take that opportunity. What was your family's reaction to you joining the group? It was mixed. I'll say my mom was was more on the side of congrats, great job. This is something you've always wanted. And my dad's maybe a little more practical, a little more rational and, and probably thinking the way that most people would think in this situation. You know, this is great, congratulations, but isn't there a way you can do both somehow? Like, can you still work? And how are you going to make any money? You know, that's, that was everyone's concern because at the time the group wasn't touring, the group wasn't doing anything. It just had recorded one CD that went number one on iTunes, but we're not the songwriters of these songs, so we're not getting these royalties that artists are getting for songs they write. So it was a, it was a legitimate concern, and I didn't have an answer for people when they were like, well, what are you going to do if it doesn't work out? Because my brother was pretty clear that if I was going to leave, it was going to be a permanent decision. But I, I don't know, maybe in the back of my mind, I thought, you know, he's my brother. He'll probably let me come crawling back if this fails. Who's going to let their brother out? to drive. Yeah, it was, everyone was happy. There was, there was no one that was saying, no, don't do this, but it was more of just proceed with caution. Walk me through what happened after you joined the group. What was the process like in the first few years? So the first thing that we did when Tyler and myself got in the group was kind of the biggest thing the group had ever done. We were approached by PBS and they asked us if we wanted to create our very own PBS special. Tyler and I hadn't done a show with these guys ever. I'd sung with Mike and Ryan before, and Tyler the same. Tyler and I got in the group in college at the same time, and then again okay. with the professional group. So this was a huge undertaking. It was gonna be nationally televised multiple, multiple, multiple times. It was daunting, but it was so much fun. It was, we went to New York, we were there for a few weeks to rehearse, learn the show, and our Tyler and my first show was our very first PBS special. And then after that, we went on tour. We did a 72 city tour. It was long, it was so much fun, and it was really the, the early days. It was still a question mark. Is this gonna work? How does anyone know who we are? Just because of YouTube, which YouTube now is not what it was back then. We'd go to Seattle and sell out a show in Seattle, and. We would legitimately ask people like, how do you even know who we are? Why are you here? And they're like, oh, well, someone, so-and-so emailed me your 12 days video and I wanted to see it and I wanted to see you guys and you guys were great and we're gonna come every year and, and people are true to that. Our fall tour has become a family tradition for many people and it's very cool to see. You've done a lot of Christmas songs too. Is that something you do every year? How often do you have a record that has Christmas songs? So the very first two records we did were holiday albums, and that was by design. So the video that went viral was the 12 Days of Christmas. Mm -hmm. So the first album was called Holiday Spirits, and that album went number one on iTunes, on Amazon. You know, it did really well. So the label was like, hey, let's do this again. So we made Christmas Cheers. 
and Christmas Cheers was also very successful. After that, it was like, okay, well, can we do non-Christmas music or are we just a holiday group? Are we just a, a novelty Christmas act? Can we do this year round? And that was the big question that everyone had, mm -hmm. not just us, promoters. People were afraid to book shows for us outside of the fourth quarter. Mm -hmm. They were like, no, I'm not touching this. Who's gonna come see a group sing Christmas songs in April? But we were like, no, we, in college, we barely even sang Christmas music. We were born in, in pop music and pop culture and, and stuff like that. So our third album, With a Twist, was completely non-holiday and it did okay. It didn't do as well, obviously, as, as the holiday albums, but the PBS special is really what I think saved us. People seeing us really then understood. Even if you buy the album and listen to the album or stream it, you might listen to it and be like, oh, okay, cool, that sounds, sounds good, cool, fun. But when you see the show, it's a completely different dynamic. None of that can really cross over on an album. It's the banter, it's the goofing around. Our show is very, has a very like Rat Pack feel to it. It's very loose, almost unrehearsed. We, we take ourselves very, very seriously but we also don't at the same time. So we wanna make sure that we never lose that. When we step out on stage, if someone makes a mistake on stage, we make sure to make fun of them and bring the audience in on the joke. There's, there's no fourth wall in our, in our shows. We're always talking to the audience. We're always interacting. If someone's late, we're gonna call them out. And that's funny to everyone else. And it's funny to the people that are late because they're part of the show now. But it's, you gotta see it to understand it. And that's why the PBS special is what I think really saved us because then there was a growing demand to see us outside of Christmas. So now we're able to tour all year round and we don't have to just sing Christmas music anymore. But we do love it. It is it is what, what bore us into this mm -hmm. into this life. So we, we make sure to sprinkle it into all of our fall tours. How do you choose your songs? Um, I guess what I've been thinking about is what makes a song suited to the acapella style? It's a, it's a question we get a lot, and it's a good question because not every song is good mm -hmm. for acapella. You know, if you listen to music that's on the radio today, a lot of it is is super electronic and a lot of that stuff doesn't really translate to acapellas you can't mimic those sounds that computers make and it just doesn't sound as as new and as cool and as produced there are groups that do it and are able to make it sound cool pentatonics does a fantastic job of taking these like edm style acapella tracks that's not our sound we're we're a little bit different I would say we're a little bit more traditional with a leaning towards pop and they are heavy pop, but it really comes down to when choosing a song, the arranger. If I'm thinking about arranging a song, I just start arranging it. I'll, I'll cherry pick ideas from different things I've heard before, or I'll come up with new ideas, or I'll brainstorm with other guys and collaborate with other guys in the group or I'm speaking as any arranger in the group, not just myself. But yeah, it's just whatever you like, or, or sometimes an audience member makes a recommendation and we're like, oh, that's, that's actually a really good recommendation. Let's give it a shot. But the, the final test for any song is putting it on stage. And there's been many songs that we thought were gonna be home run songs that everyone's gonna love that were in the show for two nights and then never done again because the audience just didn't, I don't know, they didn't connect with the song the way we thought they might, or, or maybe it was just a bad arrangement or a bad performance, who knows? But some songs don't make it. 
What's an example of a song that you thought would work and it didn't? I have a couple in my mind, but I don't want to throw anyone <laughs> under the bus. So I'm going to plead okay. the fifth on that one. I imagine, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, I imagine that being a part of an acapella group might be a little like playing a sport in which every person has a role. Is that how it works? Absolutely. Okay. What role do you play? So I'm a baritone, and baritones are the boring role. <laughs> so we our part is very dry. Usually it's very boring. It's in the middle. So it, the way it stacks up from the bottom up, it's the bass on the bottom, baritones in the middle, tenor twos just above that, and the tenor ones on the very top. Generally, the tenor ones are singing the solos, doing all the cool stuff. My role is generally baritone, but I also do some vocal percussion because there was a glitch in my puberty. I have a very high falsetto. So I get to, I do get to sing some tenor one stuff, some cool parts. So luckily something happened when my voice was changing that allowed me to, to keep that. Cause when I was a kid, I was a, I was a very high soprano and I was, I used to sing really high, like really high. And then when I went through puberty, it was just devastating to lose all that. But luckily, the falsetto is still there. Okay, I did think of a song. Okay. So we did a mashup of Whitney Houston's I Want to Dance with Somebody mm -hmm. with Justin Timberlake's Can't Stop the Music. We thought it was going to be awesome. That JT track was hot. It was number one on the charts. And who doesn't love I Want to Dance with Somebody, Whitney Houston song? So we were like, these two together, they paired perfectly. It was, it was a great mashup, but I don't know. We did it like two or three times. The audience was just like, yeah okay what's next kind of thing so maybe we read them wrong uh -huh. or maybe it just sucked I don't know yeah. so that one didn't last very long the mashup thing seems to me like a really fun part of your big project as a whole I saw one where you had done Thriller and was it a Bruno Mars song yeah so we did Thriller and Uptown Funk yes I really like that um, when did you guys start doing that or have you performed at a lot of places how did that That's, work that one came about when we were recording we were recording an album uh, a couple years ago called The New Old Fashioned and the idea was we were gonna take maybe some older songs mash them up with newer songs or you know give them a newer style newer mm -hmm. feel or even take a new song give it an older feel do it in an older style mm -hmm. And that one was the one we were most excited about. Walt arranged it, we recorded it, and then ultimately the the person behind Thriller, Rod Temperton, denied the clearance, mm. so we were never able to release it. So if you're listening to this, I have some words for you, my friend. <laughs> but we're still able to perform it. Okay. So you know off, that off, that happens often with with songwriters that don't want to mm. clear the publishing uh, on their songs, which I don't know why. It's a great mashup, but yeah. Yeah. So that that's when that one was born. Okay. It sounded like every member in the group gets to arrange some songs if they want to. Is that accurate? Yeah, okay. absolutely. Anyone can arrange. Not okay. everyone does arrange. Okay. You know, our our primary arrangers are Walt. Tyler, Mike, and Steve now has become uh, an arranger. Uh, the rest of us are more idea guys. I'll have an idea and I'll go to Mike and Tyler and Walt and Steve and say, hey, what about this? What if we do it like this? You know, they're a little bit better at, you know, putting it on paper and building the, building the track out. So, you know, it's kind of a know your strengths kind of mm -hmm. thing. Uh, I did do an arrangement. We did record it. We, re we released it on YouTube. Coincidentally, I also sing solo on it, but it's a basic arrangement. It's there's 
there's not much flair to the arrangement. It's kind of basic. These other guys put out some quality, quality arrangements, very in-depth musically. So they're much better at that than I. So I just take a back seat. I'll feed them ideas when needed. Something I do a lot is I write a lot of lyrics. So our movie medley, our Broadway medley, our Disney medley, Tyler arranged all the music and I did the lyrics also with Tyler. What's the process like from getting an idea of, for a song and then figuring out who's gonna do what? Because your voices have to take the place of these instruments and things like that that are yeah. in the original song. So how do you decide what, who does what? So first things first is you, you find a song you want to do. And what you do then is you demo the song. So you record the song, every part, bass, solo, VP, every part in between. And you send it to the group and say, what do you think? Do, do you think it back in school, the way songs would get done was, you know, people would arrange it on music and then you would learn it. Never having heard it, not knowing what it's going to sound like, it might sound like crap. And you're like, I don't want to do this song. So now we demo things first before we put them on paper. The demoing process is long, fun, even. It's stressful. It's, you know, recording all these parts and you got to EQ everything right. But generally everyone kind of sings the same part on every song. The basses sing bass. Uh, the tenor sing tenor. The baritone sing baritone. So deciding who, who does what is a little bit easier now because we've been together for so long. The only time is when it's like, okay... I'd really like for Tyler to do vocal percussion, but this song kind of is tenor heavy. So I really need Tyler's voice to sing these parts up top. So I'll have Seggy do vocal percussion because we can spare a baritone singing some boring part in the middle. So stuff like that is, is the stuff that really takes a little bit of thought. But as far as like the parts and stuff, that's generally pretty easy. What's the song you've done some of the main vocals on? On our last holiday album, I did Winter Wonderland. In the lane. I sang Say You Won't Let Go, which is on YouTube. And I do some stuff in like the Broadway medley, the Disney medley, the movie medley, a couple of other different mashups we have. The thing with our medleys <laughs> is that they're all very comedic. So all of, all of the lyrics in the Broadway medley <laughs> are kind of making fun of the musicals okay so check those out i think i think they're pretty funny i i did write the lyrics so <laughs> i hope i think that they're funny but the movie medley is the same vein okay. as well as the new disney medley is broadway yeah. music suited to acapella absolutely i mean we did a jersey boys medley for a long time you know let it go i mean frozen is now a musical we've done any dream will do from joseph amazing technicolor dream code we've done till there was you walt really wants us to do literally anything from hamilton that's any, what i was gonna ask you yeah. <laughs> we're not great rappers so it would have to be there are some good songs that you could do burn there are some there are some great songs <laughs> i i recently saw the show for the first time and i was blown away where did you see the show i saw it in chicago yeah, it's incredible. It's incredible. I mean, just the genius behind all of it. Mm -hmm. And I was a bit uh, skeptical at first because I'm not big into rap. And I was like, eh, I don't think I'll like it that much. I think, I don't know, it might be okay. And then I saw it and I was just like, oh, standing ovation after the first five minutes. I was, sure. I was all in. Something you and I have in common is that when we walk into those souvenir shops where they have the keychains and yeah, stuff, I know you and this. I will not find our names yep. on those keychains. Uh, me for a different reason. Sometimes you might find Rhoda with an H, but there will never be an R-O-D-A. 
I imagine you have the same issue. You won't walk in and see Sargon or Seggy. There's never Sargon, <laughs> and there's certainly never Seggy. Um, the, the closest I can get is, like, Mexico finding Sergio. Oh, yeah, yeah um, that's close. Rhonda for me. <laughs> yeah, but no, I, and, you know, when I, was, when I was a kid growing up, I hated my name. It was so different, and I just didn't like it. I didn't, I didn't like that my name was weird. I had the weird name, you know, but... Now that I'm older, I love it. I love having a unique name. You know, it's, it's a conversation starter. Oh. It's an icebreaker. And I'm married now, but I don't need that. But it's, it's unique, yeah. you know, and it, not everyone shares it. And it's Assyrian. And it's about as Assyrian as you can get. Sure. Has uh, anyone seen your name somewhere and said, hey, this guy's Assyrian? Yeah. You know, a couple times. So we had a show in Chicago. Obviously, there, there are many Assyrians in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And... This family, after every show, we do an autograph line where we go in the lobby, we'll sit at a table, and whoever would like to stay afterwards to get a shirt signed, a CD signed, or just to say hi, you're more than welcome to do so. And we, it's free, it's no cost, and whatever. So we had this family that was like rushing to the front of the line. They're like, oh, he's our cousin, he's our cousin. And they definitely were not my cousin, but they obviously knew I was a Syrian uh, from my name. And then I had someone in San Diego ask me if I was a Syrian. And I believe I had someone in Australia ask me if I was a Syrian. And my answer usually is like, really? You have to, you have to ask? Like, I look a Syrian and my name certainly, you know, says So is I'm your Syrian. last name. Yeah. So you've got a, an Assyrian first name and a pretty Assyrian last name. Yeah, but to, to non-Assyrians, Isho sounds very Japanese. Oh. It sounds very Japanese. Yeah. So that's... When people see my last name without seeing my first name, uh-huh. if they just see my first initial S Isho, they'll obviously assume I'm Japanese. What do your band members think of Assyrians who approach you and say, "Hey, I'm Assyrian too, and I saw your name"? It's it's kind of a ongoing joke. Like it was it was a really funny moment because you know it's not a lot of crazy things happen. We're not rock stars, you know. There's not undergarments being tossed at us. So like when, when stupid little things happen, they kind of, you know, live on for a long time and get dis- discussed a lot and brought up a lot. So that one specifically in Chicago is, is pretty funny. What is your favorite venue where you've performed over the years? You know, obviously growing up in the Detroit area, performing at the Fox Theater was always a dream, always. So that by far is my favorite place to play. It's it's one of those moments where you you step out on stage and it's cool for it's cool for a lot of different reasons. You feel proud that you're able to represent your your city on stage. You feel proud because a lot of your music teachers are in the audience, so you're showing them that like, hey, you you led me here. I wouldn't be here without you guys. Your family's in the audience, and you're giving them that affirmation as well. If you guys didn't support me, if you didn't send me to college, if you didn't pay for my college. If you didn't lift me up when I didn't get an audition, I wouldn't be here. So that's what makes it cool. Like it's, it's so special and it's very cool that each of us in the group get to have that moment in our hometowns. We've played some really cool places that I still don't know how we got to play. The Hollywood Bowl, the Greek Theater, Red Rocks out in Denver, Royal Albert Hall in London, the O2 Arena in London, stuff like that. It's just, we never take any of this for granted. You know, all of this was born overnight and all of us put on every show like it's gonna be gone tomorrow. It's still very weird to us that we are able to do this and it's 10 years this year of, from signing with Atlantic. So it's it's very surreal and it just, keeps getting more surreal the deeper we get they're trying to cut the line because chicago is a very big market for us and the the line is probably about an hour long sometimes 
and they were just trying to cut the line. I mean, hey, I don't hate on that. You want, you're trying to get home. It's late. Maybe you're trying to go get some deep dish. I don't know. You are going on tour soon, soon is that right? Yeah. 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 First, um, on Sunday, I'm actually driving down to Indiana. We're going to get back into the studio, mm-hmm. and we're recording a, another album, which will be out in October. And then I'll be on tour most of July, and then all of September I'll be on tour in Europe. And come back, have a couple of weeks off, uh, remind my son who I am, and then take off again until January 5th, roughly. What's your most favorite part of touring and what's the most challenging part of it? Most challenging is obviously being away from family. Um, you know, especially having a, a new son, it's, it is tough. And it's not just tough on me, it's tough on my wife. You know, she's basically a single mom for half the year when I'm away. It sucks because you want to help but you can't, you're away. That's the most challenging. You know, obviously technology has made it a little bit easier, you know, with things like FaceTime and stuff like that. You know, you think back to before there were phones and you think of these soldiers and musicians who are gone, traveling salesmen that are gone and they can't even see their families or or sometimes even talk to them. It blows my mind that people were able to do that. Like props to them, That's that's incredible. But that's definitely the most challenging. Um, the best part is, honestly, it's it's like being back in college. You know, you're with your college buddies. It's not work. We put on shows. It's fun. It's it's never work. It's never felt like work. It never will feel like work. We get to go out on stage every night to an audience where many people have never even heard of us. Many people have never even seen us. And maybe many people are coming back for the 10th, 11th time. We have a fan who's seen us over 200 times, which is insane. I could think of a lot better things to spend that money on. But it's insane, the connections you make with people. Oftentimes after the shows in those autograph lines, people thank us, hey, you know, I'm going through a really tough time, just been diagnosed with this, or I just lost this person, or something super tragic happens. And we're giving these people two hours away from that giving them a break, giving them two hours to kind of laugh and be silly and have fun. Those moments make it worthwhile to be away from our own families because I'm I'm excited to tell my son when he's old enough, you know what dad does? Dad goes out and entertains people, people that need it, people that need those two hours to laugh, to cry, to just enjoy themselves, to get out of the house, to, you know, whatever it is, that escape. That, I'm very excited to tell him that I get to do that. At what point in your uh, time with the band did you realize, no, this is going somewhere. Um, this is something I'm going to be doing for a really long time. Because it sounded like in the beginning you still weren't sure. You were just chasing a dream. Yeah, I mean, our, our first tour, we left that tour and we had a meeting at Atlantic where we were all kind of scared. We were like, we just did 72 no's. It was a tour before that. And the bus drivers made more money than us. So we were like legitimately scared. Oh no, did we all make a mistake leaving our careers? But it's like, nope, we can't think like that. We have to just head down, blinders on, keep moving forward, keep working, keep turning out, con- turning out content and music and stuff like that. But I think it was really the third year where we had successfully toured in the spring. We had proven to promoters that it's worth a risk to book us shows in the first three quarters of the year. Um, that's what really solidified it for us and made everyone feel comfortable that, okay, this is a career now, not just a hobby. So that was really 
the third year in, I think, is when it happened. You said in the beginning that your dad would sometimes, when you were younger, make you sing the Assyrian national anthem and the national anthem and various events. Have you ever sang any Assyrian songs? Not with the band, but just you yourself? No, I haven't. I often thought about it when I was younger. I was like, man, all these wedding singers out there, just, they're making a lot of money. Like, and I'm, I was in high school. I was like, I should do that. I was like... I don't know the la- the language well enough, and I would sound like an imposter. So I was like, ah, eh, maybe I just will not do that. But you know, obviously, growing up in church, singing all the prayers, mm-hmm. also having no idea what I was saying. Luckily, I can't remember when it was at St. Joseph where they finally put out a mass in English, mm-hmm. and there was like translations. So I knew what I was singing. It was like a, a very cool moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I you know, my dad is a very proud Assyrian. You will find an Assyrian flag waving in our front yard every single day, rain or shine, even though I've told him many times, like, you're supposed to bring it in when it rains, dad. But he's just proud. He wants everyone to know, you know, I'm Assyrian and he's a proud American. And I think what, what I've taken most from him is that you can be both and you can be proud of both and both can exist within you. And I think he is my best example of that. So I, I've been trying to follow that path. In what ways would you say you follow your dad's path in terms of your identity as an Assyrian and living that out? I have a little bit of a platform. I meet a lot of people all over the world that have no idea what Assyrians are. I can't tell you how many times people ask like, oh, are you Italian or are you Greek? Or are you this, or are you that? And I say, no, I'm a Syrian. I'm like, oh, Syrian. I'm like, no, a Syrian. Like, oh, yeah, Syrian from Syria. And I'm like, no, a Syrian. Like, oh, I don't know what that is. So then you explain to them and you're kind of teaching people a little bit about history each time I have that conversation. As frustrating as it might be sometimes that they're not hearing the A in front of Syrian, but you're teaching them something new. And, and hopefully they go out and tell someone like, hey, did you know that there's this thing called Assyrians? And like, you know, it's an old civilization and they invented so many cool things and that we use today. And so it's, I, I love that aspect of it. You know, every time I go to Starbucks, I have that conversation every time. So it's spreading the good word, I guess, of Assyrians. How has your wife embraced your Assyrian culture? She loves it. She's not Assyrian, but when she sees our family get togethers, when she comes to the parties that, that we go to, that my dad throws, she just sees this incredible culture. I mean, our wedding was, my dad was in the traditional Assyrian clothing and his buddies were also in it. And we had, um, Sergeant Gabriel singing at the wedding. So everyone on her side of the family and her were just, you know, in awe of our beautiful culture and how happy everyone is and how celebratory and how our culture is so family driven. And, you know, it's not the same in other cultures. It's not, not every culture gets together like twice a week with their entire family, like every single family member. So it's overwhelming at first, but once they're broken in, they're like, this is awesome, man. Like, it's so cool that everyone loves each other so much and you never lose a step. You move away for 10 years, you come back, you're still their nephew and you never miss a beat. And it's, and obviously the food. The food is also huge. Um, are you excited to raise your son in that same type of family dynamic where you grew up, where you got to learn, I am Assyrian, I am American. Uh, what are you looking forward to the most as you raise your son? I'm very part? excited for that. I mean, you know, a lot, of the, a lot of the stuff that I'm excited to teach him are 
isn't really taught in schools. You know, you don't really te- you don't really learn about super super ancient civilizations. I mean, they usually start with the Greeks or Romans. But I'm excited to teach him stuff that he won't learn anywhere else. These next guys are that's not how we lived. Yeah. So it'll be it'll be interesting to navigate that. But I'm excited to teach him about you know where he comes from and who his ancestors were and how they helped move the world forward and advance the world so much. And oftentimes Assyrians don't get a lot of credit for a lot of that stuff. So I'm excited to really dive into that with him. Well, I was going to end this all by saying, I really hope you do some songs from Hamilton, but it sounds like you've got someone on the band who is pushing you guys to do that. We do. It's, it's tough. I mean, Hamilton is, is so big right now. And then the mixtape, and now they're thinking about doing another mixtape. Um, but also, if I if I had my choice, I would do "You'll Be Back." That's one of my favorite shows. That's a favorite good songs one. from the show. It's hilarious that guy <laughs> stole the show. And then, um, "Dear Theodosia," like I definitely, you know, having a young son, I I definitely started tearing up when they started singing that song. Um, it's such a great song. So I, I would be for those two. That is my definition of a perfect lullaby. I think like a very slowed down version of Dear Theodosia. Doesn't that make a really nice lullaby? It's a great idea. We're we're actually thinking about doing a lullaby album for our next album. So I'm going to steal that idea. There you go. (laughs) Can you tell our listeners where they can find your music and how they can learn more about your concerts? You can find everything at sncmusic.com or YouTube, Straight No Chaser, or Facebook, Straight No Chaser, Twitter, SNC Music, Instagram, SNC Music. I'm the brown one, uh, not the black one, the brown one. Uh, I'll be easy to spot. And then uh, I'm on all the socials as well and all that info is on the website.